coming on now to Ephesians 3 and 4, continuing really what we explained when we talked about Ephesians 1 and 2. Paul's great theme in writing to the Ephesians and really to all of the people he writes to is that we are in Christ and that we are counted as if we are him and that therefore we really will be saved. And that should be the motivation for a radical uh, and fundamental unity between us and the love that that should elicit from us should be so powerful as to, to convert the world. And so let's, uh, let's just start off by observing something in verse 7 here in Ephesians 3. He talks about how the grace of God, the gift of the grace of God, has made him a minister to the gospel. Whereof, that's of the gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual or the powerful working of his power. You could read it that Paul was just sort of called to be a, a preacher of the gospel. But it seems to me that the grace that he's talking about is God's grace that we've uh, we touched on in Ephesians 1 and 2, the grace of forgiveness, of, of kindness toward us, of absolutely unmerited favor and acceptance of us, which we've each received. And one uh, outflow of that is that we will therefore preach the gospel. And yet, even the most outgoing of us would, I think, admit that we are shy somewhat to preach the gospel. And the motivation for preaching is our experience of God's grace, that he has really forgiven me. So it's not a case of stealing yourself, plucking up courage to uh, change the direction of conversations and uh, you know, get a word in for the Lord or bring it all round to uh, Bible prophecy or something to do with the Bible. But I think it's our own very deep experience of God's grace to me personally that I should not be in the status that I am in Christ, but I am. It is that, more than any steel-willed sort of fighting against our own natural shyness and timidity, it is that uh, which is what really will motivate powerful and persuasive preaching and why it will be persuasive if uh, the core of our motive is our experience of God's grace why it will be attractive to people is that it involves a recognition of our weakness what people can't stand is someone who reckons they've got all the answers to everything who's got everything sorted in their lives has never really put a foot wrong and here I am telling you uh, some kind of good news it's far more attractive if it's underpinned by a recognition of our own desperate need for grace and our experience of it. And he says um, that he is the very least of all the saints, verse 8. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles. Now, as I say, you can read the grace or the gift as being a calling to preach uh, among the Gentiles, or you can read it that he was given grace, as we all have been, and on that basis, that is what he tells the Gentiles, the whole world. But he calls himself less than the least of all the believers. And his great uh, essay, really, in humility, uh, being... uh, being the greatest, that he who considered himself to be less than the least of all the believers was without doubt uh, the great leader, ultimately, of the, uh, the early Christian church. 
And yet, when you look at Paul's letters historically, chronologically, in the order in which they're written, I think you see a kind of uh, progression. Um, <clears throat> because he, he says it when he writes to, to Timothy, at the end of his life, he wrote to Timothy, when he's really facing his death, that he had been given this uh, grace and that he was preaching to the Gentiles, when in fact he is the chief of sinners. First of Timothy 1.15 I'm the worst guy on the planet I am the chief of sinners here he says that he's when he wrote this uh, to the Ephesians sometime before that he's less than the least of all saints and yet earlier than Ephesians he had written Corinthians first of Corinthians anyway and there in 1 Corinthians he talks about how he is the least of the apostles who shouldn't really be called an apostle. Now, I think you see there a progressive realization of his own sinfulness. He writes to the Corinthians that he's the, uh, the least of the apostles. Some years later, he writes to the Ephesians, I'm the least of all the saints. And then, at the end of his life, when he writes to Timothy, I am chief of sinners. I am the worst. Now, that is really what we expect really from someone who is growing in Christ his confidence in salvation also grows I mean, in Romans 7 I'm not saying that a word of what he writes in Romans 7 is not true but let's say that from the human point of view as in Paul writing a letter to, to Rome he's very caught up with his own weakness and his own uh, sinfulness uh, etc and yet, by the time he really is about to depart, as he says in 2 Timothy 4, he's absolutely confident. I know whom I have believed, and I know for sure that there is a crown waiting for me uh, that the righteous judge will give me at that day. And so, there's two strands here. There's a conviction of his own sinfulness, and yet an increasing persuasion that he really will be saved. And I sub submit that that is the same path that we should all travel. And of course, as with all our spiritual growth, it, it's often very dysfunctional. And sometimes you know, there are some people who are so smitten down with their sense of personal failure that they can do nothing. It hamstrings them. And there are others who are so confident of uh, themselves, basically, that they are arrogant and they have missed the, the, the whole purpose, I think, of God's working with us whilst they maintain their own innocence before him, perhaps as, as Job did. Um, but in the end, we should all be brought, in the very end, uh, to that complete confidence in his grace that we will be saved, and yet that ever-increasing persuasion of our own sinfulness. And that is, he says all this in the context of his preaching. In fact, each of those three references I've given you, the 1 Corinthians 15 one where he says I'm the least of the apostles, here in Ephesians when he says I'm the least of all saints, and 1 Timothy 1.15 I'm chief of sinners, in each of those uh, references to his own sort of status of sinfulness, it's in the context of him talking about his preaching, his ministry, his witness. So he clearly saw a connection between his own awareness of God's grace and his personal forgiveness that he'd experienced and his witness to others and I think that is what made him so persuasive now on this theme of uh, preaching there in, here in chapter 3 verse 10 it's God's intention 
that now, under the principalities and powers in heavenly places, might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. And Christ, he says in Colossians, is the wisdom of God. So then, it's God's intention, and just notice that. God may have intentions that we as a community fail to fulfill, but he, he has the potential. Uh, the intention and the potential is there. It is through the church that Christ, or the wisdom of God, is to be made known. Now, who is the church? The church is people that are baptized into Christ. That's who, that's who the church is. Now, the church is therefore the, the means by which Jesus, as a person, the wisdom of God, is made known. And we're living in a literate society where pretty well uh, everybody, probably in many uh, countries where you're listening to this, uh, this talk uh, because you're online and all that, uh, most people are literate. And yet, it's very hard for us to imagine how it was in the first century where literacy rates in the Roman Empire were considered to be about 5%, and maybe in uh, a backwater like Galilee as low as, as 2%. So then the witness that was made was not by words, as in written words. It was not by pieces of paper. It was not by pushing a book under someone's nose. It was not even by giving a guy a Bible to read, because he couldn't. The witness of the Gospel was made by people. It was made by the church, as is put here. It is us, then, who are the witnesses. It is people, and not pieces of paper, not ideas, not abstractions. It's people who make the witness. And even in our own generation, we will have seen that, I think, if you have any ecclesial experience, that it is personal contact, which in the end is what brings other people to Christ. Sure, God may use internet sites and uh, the rest of it, and books uh, and all that, and I spent a lot of my life involved in, in those, two, those two media, uh, as it were, but the essential witness is of persons. And yet we also live paradoxically in this sort of hyper-literate society where communication is online, and that largely involves writing words, text messages, emails, uh, comments on Facebook, or whatever the latest thing is. Um, and yet those things, are, or those media, are all words. When it seems that it was God's intention, when it was God's intention, it says here, that it was through people, through persons, through the church, that the essential witness is made. So this was God's eternal purpose, and it, it still is. And in that sense, we can limit God. In the uh, terms of the parable, he's like the rich man, or Jesus was like the rich man who's sold everything up uh, and given his money, all his wealth, into our hands. And when he comes back, he will see how much everyone has gained by trading. He's taken a huge risk in all this. So he's delegated the gospel into our hands. It has been, as Paul says to the Thessalonians, entrusted. He's trusted us with it. Now, having uh, talked about all this, he, he says again, verse 12, in whom, and you know, he's really on about this concept of in Christ. 
all the way through. It, it's uh, absolutely fundamental that we are brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the basis of our salvation, it's the basis of our witness, the basis of our successful uh, management of our relations with each other. It's everything. So in Christ, because we are in him and counted as him, we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him, the AV says. And I, I would read that uh, as really <clears throat> by, by his faith. Because his faith is counted to us. We are counted as him. Now, this idea of boldness, he says that we can have this boldness and access into God's presence right now. You've got the similar idea in Hebrews 4:16, where we're told that because the Lord was of our nature, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So we can come boldly, confidently, before the throne of grace, <clears throat> because the Lord was and is our representative. And inevitably, perhaps, I want to connect that with 1 John 4.17, which talks about how at the day of judgment, we may have boldness in the day of judgment. So then, <clears throat> our attitude to prayer now is our attitude, in a sense, to judgment. When you come before God in prayer, before his throne, and it is a throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16 says, you are, as it were, having a, a foretaste of the day of judgment. And so, I think that our whole experience in prayer is a foretaste of that day. So when you come into his presence in prayer, I mean, do you really, are you serious about it? Do you feel his presence? Do you relate to him as a, as a, as a person? Or do you just have the sense that, you know, I'm rattling off uh, words, one side of my brain talking to another part of my brain that I call God? Um, or do you have that real sense of him? I mean, I'm sure you do, but I have to ask that question, because... I think it's possible, possible that some do not. And yet our attitude to him in prayer now is going to be our attitude to him in the day of judgment. If we do not know him as a person, and this is all a bunch of theory, and prayer is just rattling off a set of stock phrases because we ought to do it, then... Who is to say that at the Day of Judgment it will be fundamentally, in terms of relationship, any different? Now, we can assume that, okay, Jesus is going to come back and suddenly everything will be different. Suddenly I'll be switched on to uh, God and to Jesus, and suddenly I'll see everything clear. And, of course, I suppose one, one point of the Day of Judgment, one of its reasons, is so that we do sort of switch ourselves on, I suppose, but... My, my point is that nothing fundamentally, in that sense, will change. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Positively, that means that the Jesus who loved little children, the, the Jesus who was so gracious, is the same Jesus and the same Lord with whom we will have to do in the last day. And yet, and yet, it can also be that if we see him now as just uh, an idea, as an abstraction, 
I mean, have we known him? I, I can't put this in, uh, in words, really. I, I remember hearing somebody saying this many years ago, soon after I was baptized, and I just did not get what they were on about. And it wasn't until sometime later that I, I really felt it, that he is, um, and that the, uh, the black box in my brain that was maybe put there by faithful parents, by you know, some sort of Sunday school Christianity, that he is for real. And you sense his presence in your life. And I know when I came to that realization, I started calling him the Lord. It was just my way. Uh, instead of, uh, you know, Christ, I think I used to call him. Um, I, I came to just address him differently. And this, of course, raises the issue of prayer to Jesus. Uh, forgetting you for, for one moment the argument about whether you should pray to God or, or to Jesus for your requests. I mean, Paul says, make your requests known to God through Jesus. Um, yeah, okay, we could discuss that, argue about that. But the point is that forgetting about requests and who you make your requests to, there are plenty of examples in the New Testament of prayer, as in expressions of praise and adulation, uh, to Jesus. And if we are not into that well, I suggest we get into it very quickly. In fact, you only have to look through most, uh, most hymn books, uh, and you'll see that there's an awful lot of praise to Jesus. And that shouldn't just be what we mouth off and sing because we know the tune and all that, um, but that should just be an extension of the praise that is going on to him in our, in our daily thinking, in our, in our living, in our walking down the street, in our driving, in our sitting on a bus or whatever we do. And, of course, that boldness in prayer, which we can have now, is not just on our own behalf, uh, but should also be in prayer for others. Because, you know, he says in verse 14 of chapter 3 here, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he would, 16, that he would grant you to be strengthened with might by his Spirit, in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts, that you may be rooted and grounded in love, that you may be able to comprehend the length and the depth and the breadth and the height, and to know the love of Christ. So then he's praying with bowed knees, and I take that literally, for the Ephesians, that God would do something in their hearts. And any idea that the Spirit of God is somehow not active today, well, I mean, you can't make sense of verse 16 by thinking like that. That we can be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. There is an inner man that is strengthened by God's Spirit, and by prayer to God, things can happen in another person's heart. Now, we have all learnt through human experience that you can't change other people and that is true humanly speaking we cannot change others of ourselves but here we're being told that we can pray for others that something will happen in their heart positively spiritually now this is mind-blowing really it explains why 
in every every letter that Paul writes, he's continually saying, he says in every letter, I'm praying for you all the time. Because either our prayer for others has some uh, possibility of being answered, or it doesn't. And if God is only operating with men and women on the basis of what they personally uh, put into the relationship with God, um, you know, he looks at someone and says, well, you know, there's my word, you read it, you do it, and that's up to you, you pray to me for help, sure, I'll help you. Uh, if you don't, uh, then I won't. If, if that is the legalistic kind of God that we're dealing with, then who shall stand? But the point is, we can influence others right in their inner person. I find this absolutely mind-blowing. Because it means that, really, we should be men and women who are committed to prayer. I mean, if you can change positively me in my inner man, I'm all up for it. Please pray for that every day. And if I can do it for you, which Paul says here I can, then I should be doing it for you all the time. The possibilities of prayer are so great that that's why we should be praying all the time. And Paul is you know, a great example here in his letters of, uh, of praying continually for others. And the theme goes on there in chapter 4, verse 16, where he talks about us as the body of Christ, and how we grow up, verse 15, uh, into him who, in, in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the powerful working and the measure of every part, makes increase of the body unto the edifying of itself, in love. So the body, as in the body of believers, builds itself up, edifies itself in love. It's built up, at the beginning of that verse, by that which every part supplies. It's the same word in Philippians 1.19 about the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So he is working in the lives of the individual members of his body through the other members we are to build ourselves up make increase, build up ourselves uh, as a body and yet we are God's building, 1 Corinthians 2.9 God ultimately is, is the builder of all Paul says he was a master builder and yet we do it ourselves so then what that means is that all our efforts to build up one another all, that, all those efforts to supply the Spirit of Christ to others, this has got God's and, and Christ's special blessing. Because we are, as he says at, at the end there of Ephesians 4, we are members one of another. And yet he says in Ephesians 5.30, we are members of his body. Yet he says there in 4.25, we are members of one another. So he is us. And if we cut ourselves off from each other, or even worse, if we cast people out of our community, then how are we going to build them up? And how are we going to be built up by them? And remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that those parts of the body that we consider to be not very necessary, that we don't need people like that, she's an alcoholic he smokes uh, they're divorced you know 
the ones that some would say, we don't need people like that around here, thanks, you do. Because you are just a delicate little organ within a larger body. You are not the body. You are just a little part of it. And we desperately need each other. And each part of the body, each part, has something to supply. That's the huge significance of that little word in here in verse 16, which every joint supplies. It's compacted by that which every joint supplies. Every part of the body supplies something to the others. Because every part is somehow working on behalf of Jesus to mediate his spirit in the inner man.